Well, good morning, church. Welcome into MCC. If you're watching online, it's great to be with you guys. You guys having a good day here? Good day so far? It's a beautiful day outside. It was brisk. It felt great. Um, hopefully, maybe you're even watching this on a phone or an iPad or a laptop or something like out on a patio or a porch or it's fall break. Maybe even at the beach, you wretched church skipping. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just messing around. We're glad you're here. Hey, if you are watching online, please, please, please like, comment, and share this out, guys. We are putting the gospel on full display, and we pray that you would be a partner with us in that by just pressing a button uh, that says share. And know in there as well uh, that we'll be praying for you. Uh, we are praying, church, we believe when we pray, God works. And when we don't pray, it almost seems like nothing works. So, so if you're on there, how can we be praying for you today is, is a big question we want to be asking, and we hope that you'll allow us to have that place in your life. Again, if you're new here with us, whether it's your first time here and you're here in person, I'd love to get a chance to get to meet you. Uh, I'll be out there at that Connect table afterwards. Some of you I've already met. I know you're here today for the very first time. And for those of you who are watching online, it's your very first time. You can fill out that link. We'd love to connect with you as well. Hey, church, uh, a big, 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 huge awesome thing coming up next week called the Backyard Baptism Party. Uh, this time last year, we had an amazing event. We baptized like 20-something people. It was awesome. Had a great time doing that, and we wanted to do something like that again. So we're going to be having this event. And here's what I'm going to go ahead and just believe by faith and prayer. People are going to get baptized. You didn't say amen. Come on. That is an exciting thing. That, that is, that is life-changing. And, and I know, like, you hear that, and, like, and, and please let us never be the church where we're just like, oh, somebody got baptized. Oh. Like, let us be excited. Let us be thrilled about that because what's happening in that moment is people are crossing over from death to life. And I want you to know that when you're generous and, and when you give and when you tithe and when you go above and beyond to be able to make sure that the mission of MCC can continue to happen, you play a part in that. So I want to just preemptively say to those of you who, who are faithful in giving, who are faithful in generosity, and, and who contribute in that way, when you see those things happening next week, I want to go ahead and say on the front end, when you see those things happening, your giving is a part of that. Now, now God, who gave his beloved son for them, that's the main part, but you play a part. And if you want to partner with us in generosity, there's places you can do that in the back if you're in person. There's links if you want to do that online. If you're watching, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive into God's word today. Jesus, we love you. We know that we come to moments like this. God, we bring all sorts of stuff with us. But Father, despite whatever baggage we may have, whatever may have happened in the Dodge Caravan on the way over here, I pray that we can meet with you. I pray that that would be enough. I pray that even if we feel empty right now, you would fill us up. I pray if we have questions, God, we don't, we don't necessarily even show up here looking for answers. We just show up looking for you. We have a meeting with you. We have an encounter with you. Your love meets us where we're at. Maybe even walk away not knowing, hey, I, I, I don't need to have that answered because I learned something about who Jesus is. And I pray you would do that through your word. Your word is the only thing that can do that. So meet us where we are. But Jesus, please, do not leave us there. In your name, amen. Today we're continuing on with part three of our series called Due to Unforeseen Circumstances. That's been kind of the common theme of our life for the past, I don't know, feels like forever, probably only about six months, but that's been kind of this theme. And today, the title of today's talk is Due to Unforeseen Circumstances, I Am in Paradise. Some people are in paradise right now, they're out on fall break, just kicking it up. They're going to be watching this next Thursday and oh, i got to catch up on Pastor Trent's message. Um, but how many of you would, would be like, rather be at the beach? Anybody? Just be honest, guys. It's church, okay? Goodness. 
shoot. I, th- I walked outside today, and I thought it would be a great day to go golf, be a great day for baseball, be a great day for fishing. But listen, I really do believe it's a great day to hear from God. And as, as much as maybe we would rather be somewhere else, we're here. And, and I believe we're here for a reason. And today we're going to dive into this passage. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. It's in Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the New Testament, Luke chapter 23. We're going to start at verse 32. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of backstory to set this up for you. We are coming down to the final hours of Jesus' life on earth. He has now been convicted, tried, and sentenced to execution by crucifixion. And that's where our story picks up. Luke chapter 23, and start in verse 32. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to a place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. I don't know what the word paradise causes your brain to conjure up. What mental pictures happen when you say that word. But what I want to do today is I want to dive into this passage and and walk through it almost word by word and verse by verse to help you see what Jesus is offering, not just to a criminal on a cross, but to you as you sit in a chair or a sofa or a love seat or by the pool. Let's dive in. If you've got a Bible, we're going to go through this. We're going to start Luke 23, verse 32. Let's walk through this together. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to a place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Alright, a lot is going on here. The Romans, crucifixion was their thing. It was what they did to show everybody around that they were in charge. It's an incredibly torturous, painful, harmful thing to do. One of the most painful things that you could do to someone's body. Which, by the way, if you're a kid in the room, we're talking about body parts. You're listening for three body parts. And there are these criminals who are led out and they're going with Jesus to be crucified. And I want you to hone in on something here that's happening because it's actually something that's fulfilling hundreds of years old worth of prophecy. When it says Jesus was led out to be crucified by criminals, it's actually fulfilling Isaiah 53, 12 that says he was numbered among the transgressors. That he was actually a friend of sinners. And when you think about the life of Jesus, it's fascinating to think about how unique of a God he is. 
the people you know in your life who may serve other gods or worship other religions, there's huge distinctions between all the other world religions and ours if we claim to follow Jesus. See, what's fascinating about Jesus, maybe you didn't realize this, Jesus' life began between animals and it ended between criminals. And this dichotomy of how he started his life and how he ended his life, it speaks to the humility of the God and Savior we have. One that would say, I'm going to put flesh and blood on, I'm going to come to earth, and I'm going to meet my people where they are. There's not some thing that they have to be reincarnated to become. There's not some ladder that they have to climb. I'm going to meet them. And we have this God who is willing to go to absolutely amazing lengths even out of his way, seemingly, to meet people where they are. He went out of his way to the shores of the Sea of Galilee to meet some fishermen, up-and-coming fishermen. And he called them to himself. He went out of his way to the cubicle of a pencil-pushing tax collector named Matthew. And he said, come and follow me. And the place that he took him wasn't to religious school, wasn't to rabbi school, wasn't to a place to say, hey, you, you've been stealing and robbing for people, so I need to come and take you to a place where you can get everything right. He said, Matthew, come and follow me. And they actually let Matthew lead, and they went back to Matthew's dinner table, and they met with a whole bunch of other sinners, while the religious pious looked on and said, how dare he meet and eat with those sinners? He went out of his way to meet with not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And not just a Samaritan, and not just a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman who was bound up in sexual sin. And he goes to this woman and he meets with her. He says, you've been trying to satisfy a thirst, but let me tell you that I am this well, I am this living water. He goes out of his way to call down this man who is challenged with his height. And cannot see Jesus as he's coming by. And he goes out of his way to look up into a tree and says, Little Zacchaeus, will you climb down out of that tree? And will you take me into your house? And can we have dinner together? And if all those things weren't enough to say that we have this Jesus who goes out of his way to meet people where they are, now here in this story we have Jesus going out of his way to literally meet a criminal on a cross. Talk about a God who is willing to go to any means necessary to meet us where we are. We have that God in Jesus. And friend, there is no length that Jesus will not go to for you to have a face-to-face -face encounter with his grace and his love, even if it means that he has got to stand on a cross beside you. That's the God we serve. And before we dive into the rest of this passage, we have to understand that is the root theology of this story. That we have a God who meets people where they are. Next verses. Verse 34. It says, in Jesus, this is happening. He's being led to this place, the skull, Golgotha, Calvary. It says he's there. And we get a glimpse into what he's actually saying in this moment. It says, and Jesus said in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It says they cast lots to divide up his clothes, his garments. Last week, we talked about anger. And we talked about how often Jesus, what made him angry was not injustice done to him, but injustice done to other people. And here we see that same character trait as Jesus is being whipped, mocked, 
as he's carrying his cross, he is not angry at the other people. He is not spitting at back at the people who are spitting in his face. He's not trying to grab uh, follicles of hair out of their beards as they grab them out of his beard. But what we see is that Jesus who is saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Who deep from inside of them has compassion that blows our minds away because that is so far from how we oftentimes respond to people. I want you to put a bookmark on verse 34 because we're going to come back to that. I think there's something key to understanding this whole story in that verse. The story goes on and Luke is writing as a, a physician who is giving us his eyewitness account of what was happening. Uh, his eyewitness account as he's going to other eyewitnesses. Luke wasn't there. Luke wasn't one of the 12 disciples. And so Luke, what he's doing is, is Luke is going around to people like Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, Jesus' disciples. And he's kind of bankrolled by this rich guy named Theophilus to go out and investigate and figure out, is this story about Jesus? I've heard all this stuff about Jesus, but is it true? He says, go out and figure that out for me. And he does. And so when we get these little details all in the story, what we're actually getting is eyewitness accounts that Luke got from people who were standing there. And we get a glimpse into that here, verse 35 through 38. It says, And people stood by, watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers, and you got a whole different group of people here. So you have the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus is a Jew. You have the people who are like him going, hmm. he, he said he could do this. He said tear the temple down, build it in three days. He said he was the son of God. He said he was the Messiah. Look at him. If he really was all those things, save himself. And then you've got a group of people in the Romans who don't give a rip about Yahweh, who don't care about Jerusalem, who aren't engaged with all of that. All they've heard is this rumor that this guy is supposedly the king of the Jews. And they're looking at this guy and go, is that how your kings do? Because our king Caesar, he wouldn't let this happen. So they mock him. And they come up and they're offering sour wine. What they're trying to do there is that sour wine was traditionally something that these soldiers would give to the person who was being crucified in order to nullify some of the pain that they were experiencing so that a crucifixion would actually take longer. And crucifixion was done to be this public spectacle. Back in that day, I don't mean to insult your intelligence here, but they did not have technology. And so a crucifixion was actually something that was a form of entertainment. You would gather your kids and your family together. And you would go out and you would see, oh, who's being crucified? And that brutality was the only thing that you really had as a form of entertainment. So they're going out. They're seeing what's going on. It's what the Romans enjoy. And they even said, if you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Because they're looking up at the placard above his head that says king of the Jews. I want to insert a verse here that if we don't insert It'll cause us to miss out on the authenticity of the story. Because oftentimes when you hear the story about the thief on the cross, right, guys, we, we, we think, oh, well, there's this one really good thief, and, like, he had his stuff together, and he was nice to Jesus, and he believed in Jesus, and he got to go to paradise. And then there was a mean thief, and he just didn't, and he didn't get to go to heaven. But that's not the whole story. See, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, it says that, in the same way, the rebels or the criminals who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So Matthew, a little bit different than Luke here, Matthew comes along and says, and, and this is uh, backed up by the other Gospels, they're saying, hey, listen, the Jews were, the religious leaders, so were the soldiers, 
And so were the criminals who were being crucified with him. Everybody around Jesus in this moment is, is bashing him. Everybody around him is making fun of him. Everybody around him is discrediting him as God, including the criminal who we oftentimes look at, the good one. And what's happening here, I want you to understand these guys. A lot of times, you know, maybe your version, your Bible translation, it refers to these guys as thieves or robbers. But I want you to understand that they were much more than that. These men were Jews. The Romans didn't crucify their own. Very, very rarely would they crucify another Roman citizen. So when they're crucifying somebody, they're crucifying someone who is a Jew to say, you do not mess with Rome. And these people, the Bible calls rebels. And what that means is they were a part of a religious sect called the Zealots. And these people who were zealots, basically what they would do is because they believed that their God, that Yahweh was a true God and that Rome should not be oppressing them and they should go back to the ways it was when King David was in charge. They were a make Jerusalem great again type of people. That's what they wanted to see happen. And, and so they would cause insurrection and they would cause riots and they would do these different things in order to rebel against Rome and mess up the institution of Rome. And these two guys are not just common criminals who got in trouble for stealing something. These are people who are calculated men who are trying to upset the incredibly powerful apple cart that was Rome. Now I want you to know, there is a missing rebel in the story. And his name is Barabbas. Likely these three men knew each other. These two criminals who were crucified on either side of Christ and then this guy named Barabbas. If you know your Bible, you know the story of Barabbas. Barabbas was a guy who was let off by Pontius Pilate. Every day or before the Passover, one of the things that they would do before this religious tradition is they would take two criminals. And, and uh, it was a tradition that Pilate, in order to just kind of keep the applause of the crowd going, he would say, hey, I'm going to release somebody who's on death row. In this particular Passover, it was Jesus Christ or Barabbas. And the crowd, who all wanted to see Jesus dead, they shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. So when you see these three crosses on the hill, three... See three rebels. And the one in the middle was supposed to be Barabbas. But Jesus took his place. They're not just common criminals. They're rebels against Rome. And even the man who we look at and go, oh, that was the good criminal. You've got to understand that at some point, these guys likely knew about Jesus. They, they understood who Jesus was. Again, Jesus is doing all these ministries. He's been in three years doing miraculous signs all around this place. And so there is this uprising of the rumors about who Jesus is. They had likely seen him before, encountered him before. They know he can heal. They know he's claiming to be the Messiah. They know he can turn all sorts of breads and fishes up into loaves and fishes just everywhere. Food for everybody. You get some food. You get some food. You get some food. He can do all these things. And so their hearts... As people who are fired up, patriots, to see Jerusalem return to its former glory, they are putting all sorts of hope in him. And like so many of us, when Jesus doesn't live up to our hopes for him, we turn our backs on him. And when, when, when both of these criminals are hurling insults on him, it's not because they don't believe he could be the Messiah. It's because they did believe he could be the Messiah. But he didn't do it the way they thought he would. We see the story go on from here. We see a little bit of a change of heart happen even. In Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed him. He was saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. 
So again, this is, this is what we commonly refer to as, as the bad criminal. He's here and he's saying, Jesus, aren't you the Christ? Prove it. Prove it. And we've been there. When we go through midst of pain, we're, we're kind of at the end of our rope. Jesus, prove it. Prove you are who you say you are. But I want you to see something here. I want you to look at what the criminal questions and what the criminal commands out of Jesus. First of all, look at his question. Are you not the Christ? Now, true or false? Was Jesus the Christ? Write in the comments. Was Jesus the Christ? Yeah, not a trick one. Jesus was the Christ. Now, look at his command. He says, save yourself and us. True or false, could Jesus have done both? I got you on that one. He could not have done both. The only way that Jesus could save the guy on his left and the guy on his right is if he did not save himself. He had to willingly lay down his life and give his life and be crucified for the man on his left and for the man on his right and for the person on your left and the person on your right. That's the only way that he could have saved them is if he chose not to save himself. That's what he did for us. And so many times I think like the criminal we're talking about now, the one in pride and in anger is frustrated with Jesus for not doing what he said is. We realize, hey, you, I'm pretty sure, I, I'm, I'm feeling like you're the Christ. And the fact that I think you are the Christ is what frustrates me the most, that you're not doing what I think you should be doing. And so, what I think Jesus oftentimes answers our questions, this is what causes us to get frustrated with these unanswered prayers, is the same thing is happening. I believe if Jesus could have or would have spoken into him, I think he would have said, listen, I am the Christ. But if I did what you're asking me to do, I would not be the Christ anymore. Because I would have to surpass what I've been called to do by my Father. I think sometimes in our lives, Jesus doesn't answer our prayers. And I think his, his response to our frustration would be, friend, I am Jesus. I do love you. I know everything about you. I care for you. I would never leave you. I will never forsake you. But if I did what you're asking me to do, I would not still be Christ to you. I would be a sugar daddy. I would be an investor. I would be a vending machine. I would be a bankroller. I would be a escape route. But I would not be Christ. And you need me to be Christ. And we need him to be Christ. Because if he's anything else to us, then he cannot be Christ. We see this conversation happen, and one of the things you've got to notice here is his response. His response is pride. It's not that he doesn't believe in Jesus, but, but, but it's pride to go, Jesus, why didn't you do it my way? And see, how many times for us, in our anger, in our pain, we say things that we wish we would have never said. See, pride has this terrible way of making us not realize the good that other people are doing for us. He missed it. He completely missed it. But he's in good company with people who missed it. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they missed it. All of Jesus' people around him, they missed it. And this is one of the criminals. He missed it as well. So we see him say this. But out of left field, there comes a response to him. That should be more surprising than I think sometimes it is. Look at verse 40. It says, but the other 
the other criminal, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? In verse 41, and, and we, we are indeed justly under this. So like we're getting what we deserve. Don't you fear God? He says, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We are getting what our deeds are, are due. Then he says something. Seems really strange coming off the lips of a man who had spent just a few hours earlier questioning, berating, and railing the man he is now saying has done nothing wrong. And I wonder, if you wonder, like I wonder, about what changed. So again, let me track with me here. So we have a guy who just a few short hours earlier, maybe not even that long, is in the same company with his other robber friend, criminal friend, rebel friend, and they're railing against Christ. And now as they're up on the cross, something has now changed in his tone. And he went from bashing Christ to now standing up for Christ. He's saying, listen, don't you fear God? And it's that, that's his way of saying, listen, if I believe he's God. And if they're doing this to God, I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Because when God comes back and repays those who are doing this to him, it's not going to be pretty. He says, don't you fear? He says, we're getting what we deserve. We, this is justice played out. We deserve this pain, this punishment, because we did what was wrong. He did nothing wrong. And I ask the question, what happened? What changed in his heart and his mind? If you got your Bible open or your app open, go back up to verse 23. Verse 23 in Luke. Or I mean verse 34. Sorry, it's chapter 23. My bad. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. I want you to look at something there. I'm going to show you it again. I told you we were going to come back to that. Look at, look at what it says. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for what? For they know not what they are doing. If you really push me and you go, Trent, why do you really think he had a change of heart? I would point you back to verse 34. Scholars throughout history of interpreting the Bible, they have argued over those first three words in this verse, where it says, and Jesus said. They've argued about the tense of these words, because if you say it one way, it implies one thing. If you say it another way, it kind of implies something else. It's actually better translated, not as, and Jesus said. It's actually better translated, and Jesus was saying. Now that kind of changes things for me. Because if Jesus said it, and if I just read, and Jesus said, that's Jesus up on the cross, one good time, he goes, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now that's, that's incredibly amazing, powerful in and of itself. But if the true meaning is, and Jesus was saying, then for me that implies that we very well may have Jesus hanging on a cross next to two criminals, and over and over again, Abba, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. There's a translation of the Bible that actually translates it that way. It's, called, it's out of the Passion Translation. I would not say this is one that I would highly recommend as being your primary source to study the Bible. It's good for supplement stuff. But this is how it's translated in there. In Luke 23, verse 34. 
It says, while they were nailing Jesus to the cross, he prayed over and over, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. See, and again, you can argue whether or not Jesus actually said it once or he said it 73 different times. It, It really doesn't matter. Here's the truth, though. I believe, regardless of Jesus said, Father, forgive them over and over again, he has forgiven us over and over again. He forgave those people over and over again. He's continued to forgive me over and over again because, hey, maybe I'm the only one willing to admit this, but I actually struggle with some habitual sins. Things that I go, dang it. Sorry again, kids. Man, I've got one more week. Um, why, gosh, why, why is this still part of my life? Why, why have I not graduated from this spiritually? And maybe I'm the only one, but I believe that there are, there are some other people who are willing to be real and honest with yourself. And man, there are some things that I mess up on over and over again. And maybe just maybe I need a God who forgives over and over again. And I think some of that's what allowed a criminal who in one sense was like, I'm so mad at you, Jesus. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. You could save us. To look at his fellow criminal and essentially say, shut up. This man has done nothing wrong. We're getting what we deserved. What if it was the voice of Christ right beside him saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That melted a hard heart that was so consumed with, Jesus, do what I want you to do. That when it heard, they know not what they do. So forgive them. It melted it. And it allowed him to just have the small trigger in his mind and his heart. Allowed his faith. Though he was dying on a cross. An excruciating, painful death. That in the midst of dying, his faith would be coming to life. I want you to see the rest of the conversation between these two. It's powerful. So this criminal, he takes the conversation from his friend and he puts the conversation to Jesus. In verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want you to understand something about crucifixion that's just got to get this what really killed you in crucifixion was not blood loss like just blood yes blood's flowing out of your body yes arteries are pierced but the thing that killed you in crucifixion this is why the romans invented it to be something that could drag out for hours and hours and hours is it was a slow suffocation on your own blood and so your lungs are, are filling up with your own blood, and that's what's causing you to die. Now, if that's happening, you may be able to guess that if your lungs are filling up with blood and you're suffocating on your own blood, one of the most difficult and painful things to do is to talk. And we see in Scripture, Jesus said seven different things on the cross. But you also see in Scripture that you have these two criminals who are willing to go through more excruciating pain to communicate things to Jesus. On one side, you have a criminal 
who's willing to go through more excruciating pain to tell Jesus off and to let Jesus know how frustrated he is with him not doing what he wanted him to do. On the other side, you have a criminal who's willing to go through more excruciating pain to lift himself up off the beam of his cross and tell his fellow criminal, do you not fear God? We are getting what we deserve. This man is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go through pain, big pain, little pain, the last thing I want to do in the midst of my own pain is think about anybody else. Like a few days ago, or a couple of weekends ago, I was at the Hyatt's house, and we were having a great time, and I rolled my ankle playing wiffle ball with kids. I mean, like, I mean, it just like instantly is like turning black. It looked like my toenails were going to fall off because they were just... It was just nasty, and it was just big, and it's fat, and it's still fat, and it looks like that I have a golf ball hidden under my foot. It's ridiculous, but thank Jesus, I can walk around, and I'm doing this, and I want you to understand something. As I'm laying there on the sod at the Hyatt's house with my butt on the ground, ankle rolled, and my children are there. My wife is there. I'm not in the midst of my sprained ankle going, does Ezra have his floaties on? <laughs> it's, it's, I hope he doesn't trip and fall anywhere in the pool. What's Titus doing? Is Jessica winning at Cornhole? No. My ankle is blown up. And I'm only thinking about me. Which in, this, in regard to this story, you've got to understand that I don't want you to miss this. You have to be able to see this. That there is something so miraculous, so loving, so amazingly compassionate about Jesus. That in the midst of unimaginable pain, he can make it cease so that a man goes from incredible affliction and he turns his attention to Jesus. There's something there. And that something there is the fact that God was on the cross next to him. And he says, Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me? Which if you think about that, that's pretty wild, right? Like all the things he could have said. Like he could have just said, Jesus, please, 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 please. He could have just begged. He says, Jesus, remember me. And I think if, if, if Jesus would have had unlimited breath, because again, his body was still 100% man, I think if Jesus had unlimited breath, he would have turned his head and he would have looked at this criminal on the side of him and he would have said, remember you? Remember you? Son, how could I ever forget you? How could I ever forget you? I don't know about you, but like, uh, you know, I, I have children and anytime my kids get hurt, I, I kind of freak out. I, I'm, I get you know, Jessica accused me of being more of a helicopter parent than she is. But here's the deal. You've experienced this if you have kids that play sports or you have grandkids that play sports or you played sports as a child. You ever been on a playing field and you see a kid get hurt? If the parents are in the stands and they're watching the game and a kid gets injured and they're in the dirt screaming and crying, you cross this, this line where mamas know, like, dress is going up, heels are going down the stands, like, she's going out there. And nobody had to tap her on the leg and go, ma'am, ma'am, that kid who's down there screaming and yelling, that's yours. No, 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 no. She, the moment the cry happened, the moment the scream happened, the mom knows. And God, as a good and loving Heavenly Father, when we're hurt and we're in pain, God says, I'm going down to get on the playing field. I'm coming into their lives. I'm showing up. Nobody had to remind me that you were mine. He steps in the midst of our pain, and he shows up. And he gets down in the dirt, 
Despite the fact that he is robed in brilliant majesty and perfection, he comes to us in the midst of our pain and brokenness like he meets this criminal here. And some of you, you've got this image of a God because you're still focused on man's love and not God's love. And man's love is based off of your performance and that being based off of how much or how less God loves you. And you don't have a, a view of God's love as not being based off of your performance, but his son's performance on the cross and how much his love exceeds and blows out of his veins for you. And you think that when Jesus does come to you, because you, you, you'll be okay, and you go, yeah, yeah, I've read, I've been enough sermons to know, like, Jesus really will come and get me. And you think that he shows up to you, and he's kind of like, all right, come on, come on, you stay, come on, bring it in, bring it in, come on, come on. Well, he's just giving you the side hug, like COVID conscious, nose plug, and like, you absolutely reek, would you just come on, let me go take you and clean you up. That's not our God. That's not who he is. He's a God. Willing to take a crown of thorns, have other people's spit, fill his eyes, be covered in blood head to toe to show you, I'll meet you where you're at. So when he says, Remember me, I believe Jesus would go, Oh man, I can never forget you. I've had you on my mind forever. My father has had you on, you have been on our mind. You you, you loved us, but you loved us and then you you got a little bit too crazy about it. He's just talking to the criminal. You got a little too zealous. We didn't do things your way. You got a little too angry about it. You went a little overboard in in, in, in what you thought was right and what was wrong. You missed out on this crazy thing called compassion. You want it to be done your way. Done as my way. He says, I can, I can, we're never going to forget you. I love it. How Jesus responds. Underline it, highlight it. Critical to understand who Jesus is for you. Verse 43. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's some amazing things in this that I want you to not miss. First of all, the word truly is kind of a weak a little bit of a weak translation. If you read in the Greek, in other translations, they put it as verily or assuredly. Now, I know we don't usually use assuredly. Your mama, you're like, what's for dinner? Assuredly. We're going to have chicken pot pie for dinner tonight. Like, nobody talks like that. And so we have a hard time understanding what Jesus is really after. And again, he is hanging on a cross. He is suffocating on his own blood. Every word that comes out of his mouth is incredibly critical, is incredibly important. And he goes to a length when he could just say, he could have he nodded and went, He did not. He spoke words. He said, assuredly, verily, truly, to put this in modern vernacular, this is Jesus going, show enough. You're going to be in heaven with me today. This is Jesus saying, for real, for real. This is Jesus saying, take it to the bank. This is Jesus giving him heaven's confirmation code. He's saying, it's for real. And listen to what he says after that. He says, truly, I say to you, because you know this, you've experienced this in your life, a promise is only as good as the person who's making it. So when Jesus says, I'm saying this to you, he's saying, you've already realized there's been this divine miracle inside of your head somehow, I believe, because you saw my love and my forgiveness and my grace that I was given on people who did not deserve it, and I'm interceding on behalf of them before the Father in the midst of my pain. He's saying, you already believe in me. You, you trust in me. And so you know who I am now. God has opened your eyes to that. And I'm the one who's saying, truly, 
You will be with me today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when you get your stuff together. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, if you missed last week's message, you missed us talking about paradise. And the sanctuary that God has been after all along. In this word, I want you to see here in paradise in your Bible. If you're an underliner, you're a note taker in your Bible, I want you to underline that word paradise. Because when Jesus says paradise, and again, you gotta remember, Jesus could have chosen any single word ever. He could have said heaven, he could have said my father's kingdom. He said paradise on purpose. And here's why. The root word for paradise, and what it's more accurately translated as, he's saying, Today you will be with me in the walled garden. That's the root paradise. The word that's translated there. That's what that word is translated. Go look it up. Walled garden. It's Jesus' way of saying, like we talked about last week, when man, Adam and Eve, were in the garden, the way God really intended it to be, where they walked and talked with him in perfect intimacy, and in in an amazing act of love, God is there with them, the way he created it to really be. And once we sinned, once they sinned, ever since then, the big giant question at the soul and the heart of humanity, even the people who have butts in these chairs and the butts on the chairs online, the heart, the question in the heart of humanity is how can we get back to what we were created to experience? How can we get back to how God made things to be? How can we get back to the garden? How can we get back to God? And I find it no coincidence the word Jesus chooses when he says, today you will be with me in paradise same word that would equal today you will be back with me in the garden today things are going back to the way they're supposed to be and guys that's what Jesus offers us and if you put your faith in him that same walled garden of paradise with God is where you're heading now I know in the midst of the moment you feel like right now you may feel like you are in your own personal crucifixion moment where all the pain and all the hell is breaking loose in your life, and that's all you you seem to experience. But I want you to understand, I said from the very beginning here, there's a God who's willing to go to amazing lengths to show you in the midst of whatever painful thing you're experiencing that he is right beside you to not lose hope. A few things I want to drive into on this to make sure you don't miss The story is beautiful in and of itself, but I want you to understand some key things about here. The first thing I want you to understand is that heaven is a person before it's a place. Heaven, heaven, way before it was a place to go to where where the the trout streams have 14-foot rainbow trout and you catch one every single time and you get to hug grandmama's neck and you get to eat all the food and no carbs and no weight gain and nothing. Before heaven is all of those things that we want it to be, heaven is a person. That's why he said before the word paradise, he said, you will be with me. Next thing you got to know about this is that repentance, friends, repentance is what precedes paradise. If this man who's hanging on the cross, who, who finds himself into paradise, had he not said, I am not worthy, I am getting what I deserve. We are sinners. Had he not come clean and owned up to his mistakes, failings, and shortcomings, Jesus will not clean you unless you are willing to admit that you are unclean. If you're willing to admit you missed the mark, you failed. He says if if paradise is what you want, repentance is step one. Repent. You believe in me. Repent. Turn from this. 
The last thing I want you to know is that there are no, absolutely no, there are no helpless, there are no hopeless cases. And so I don't know what you feel like in the chair you sit in today and how hopeless or not hopeless you feel, but you're not. If a criminal convicted of rebelling against Rome who had lived probably the majority of his adult life on a misguided religious campaign misrepresenting God doing more harm for the kingdom of God than good can be on a cross next to God and have what was the worst thing he could possibly experience turn into the best possible thing that he could experience then I don't think you're too far gone and listen that means that there's no other ones around us so that people group or that relative, or that friend, or that neighbor. There are no hopeless cases. There's no such thing. And what God has called us to do, if we are believers in Him, is to realize that we experienced the living hope that is Jesus before we died. That, that unlike the criminal, we didn't get this deathbed conversion. That we've been converted now, and we have a future and we have this living hope inside of us. And our job with the living hope that is Jesus inside of us is to make sure as many people as possible before they die experience the living hope that can only be found in Him. That's why, that's why I say bring people into this. That's why we, why we baptize people. That's why we say you've got to not just be a Sunday Christian who may not be any Monday good. Take the gospel where you go. Because there's a living hope inside of you that needs to be inside of other people before it's too late. Because here's the deal, and this is the hard reality. For the other criminal, it was too late. And this one went to paradise. And this one went to a place that was the furthest thing from the reality of paradise. This one went to a place where there was separation from God. This one went to a place where he never experienced the joy that he thought God would offer. And I want you to know where you're going to go. I want you to know who Jesus is. I want you to know what he's done for you. I want you to accept what he's done for you. Because tomorrow is not a promise. And if you're here today and you want to put your faith in Jesus, you're watching today, you want to put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus. To say, Jesus the same way you offered the thief on the cross forgiveness, I want you to offer that to me as well. And I'm taking that offer up. And I'm laying down my old life, and I'm realizing that I deserved a cross, but you went to the cross, and you chose not to save yourself so that you could save me. Church, if you're watching, if you're here, and that's you, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer. Jesus, I turn from my sin. I give my heart to you. I surrender the life that I tried to make to receive the life you died to give. My heart is yours. My life is yours. Your will is now my will as I seek to follow you. In your name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, 
you're here in person or you're online, we believe that God is doing miraculous things inside your heart. The same miraculous things that he did inside the heart, mind, and life of a criminal on a cross beside Jesus. I'm going to invite you to take that next step in your faith and to get baptized. We're going to do that next week. We're going to do it in a way that, again, is COVID conscious, full of chlorine and gloves and all this other fun stuff that comes with that. But don't let what God is doing inside of your heart right now stay in this moment. Let it find its way into the future. I believe God has for you to take that next step. Whether it's baptism, or it's having a hard conversation, or it's asking forgiveness, whether it's regaining hope for yourself or for someone else, to do that. I'm going to give you a great time to do that as we get ready to go into communion. I'm going to sing our song. We'll wrap up our time together today. If you haven't already, you can go back to the back and grab uh, communion elements. As you meet with Jesus today, pray that you know he is the living hope. That he is here for you. There's no length that he would not go for you. Do you accept him for who he is because he has accepted you for who you are? Let me pray. And then you meet with Jesus. And then we're going to sing together about this living hope we have in him. Father God, we are so undeserving. So we lay ourselves down before you, God, repenting of pride and asking to take up the humility that Jesus, you put on full display when you came to this earth that you created and gave your life for us as your creation. Meet with us as we encounter you today. Heal our hearts. Awaken hope, God, to the truth that can only be found in a relationship with you. In your name, Jesus. Thank you.